Welcome to the University of California, San Francisco Sports Medicine Podcast, featuring Dr. Nira Fundia, Dr. Brian Feely, and Dr. Drew Lansdowne, discussing hot topics in sports medicine and society. We hope you enjoy our podcast and look forward to hearing from you. Welcome, everyone, to the UCSF Sports Medicine Podcast, six to eight weeks with myself, Dr. Nira Fundia, Dr. Brian Feely, and Dr. Drew Lansdowne. Today, we have the honor of after having Dr. Tad Vale on, our chairman here at the University of California, San Francisco, of the Department of Orthopedic Surgery. And for me, it's, it's finally time I get to actually interview Dr. Vale, because I interviewed with him when I was trying to apply for residency at Duke. Then uh, he interviewed me for a job here, and now finally, the, the tables have turned 10 years later, and we get to bring him on and ask him questions. So thank you for joining us, Dr. Vale. We really appreciate it. Well, it's great to be here, and thank you for the invitation. Great. So uh, I'll start out with our first question, and obviously your area of expertise is, is joint replacement. Um, for our audience, what do you feel is the biggest advance that's been made in, in joint replacement over the past 10 to 15 years? Well, there are two things that immediately come to mind in, in joint replacement that have changed. And, and for one is the, the patient experience and the acceleration of recovery. Uh, you know, it's, it wasn't long ago that patients were spending several days routinely in the hospital after having a hip or a knee replaced. And now with the uh, improvements in pain management, you know, preemptive pain protocols, nerve blocks, uh, physical therapy, uh, allowing patients to get up very quickly, it's, it's changed the whole experience. And patients will go home the same day sometimes, spend one night in the hospital typically, and go home the next day. That's, that is pretty astounding change over over a short period of time the other part of it that is maybe less apparent to patients but uh, the for the surgeons the durability of the devices again it wasn't long ago where we were telling patients hey uh, we, we we can replace your hip i think that's the right thing to do but you're, you're kind of young and it's likely that we're going to have to redo this in 10 years and I can remember that was the benchmark, you know, 10 years is what you could say to a patient. 10 years is how long it would last. And now we expect 90% of these implants to last 30 years just because of the improvements in the materials and their durability and resistance to wear and other, other mechanisms of failure. So I think two major changes that really have happened in the last decade uh, in, in joint replacement. Yeah, it's interesting that you bring that up. I remember when I was a resident, which wasn't that long ago, but even our ACLs would stay overnight, or if it was at the VA, they would stay four nights. Um, one thing that we've noticed a lot, in, especially with, with Drew and I in sports medicine, is that patients are younger as they get joint replacements, or they're offered joint replacement as a, young, as a younger and younger patient, but then they want to be active afterwards. So what are your restrictions or advice to the patients that are like 45 to 60 and have a hip or knee replacement and still want to have an active lifestyle? Yeah, well, that's a, it's a really interesting point. And if you think about what has driven change in all of our subspecialties, it's the patients. Because we can, we can tell them something and generally they'll listen to us, they're reasonable, but they'll also push the envelope uh, every time. And, it, and, it, and I mean collectively as a group, not every single patient. And that's what sort of drives the field forward and sort of changes the recommendations as we determine, hey, this, these, this patient can actually play tennis after having a knee replacement. This, this patient's out surfing and nothing bad happened. And so 
we learn from the patients. That being said, I, I try to instill some common sense. Um, I know a lot of times people have or choose to have the operations that we do with a specific goal in mind. And it, it often involves uh, a certain activity. And you can talk about the pros and cons of that and what the risks are. I try to get people in the total joint category to agree to low impact activities. We, we talk about the potential for injury. So skiing is one subject that comes up a lot around here. The patients who like to ski and, and they're not gonna wear their joint replacement out on a ski slope, but if they crash or somebody runs into them, they break their femur, they're harder to put back together or they dislocate something, it's, it's, a, it's a bigger deal. So the stakes may be a little higher is, is one way to look at it. Uh, but the, the counterbalance here and the reason I'm not you know, so dogmatic is that you want people to stay healthy and happy. That's why we do these operations. And if you get in the way of that, uh, allowing them to stay healthy and fit and happy, then you're probably in the big picture not doing them a great favor for their general health. So I, I let them do most of what they want to do unless it's really crazy. Yeah, we had uh, Brian Cole on a couple of weeks ago, and that was one of the things he told or he discussed with his patients with early cartilage injuries that by and large, the risk of not being active far outweighs the risk of cartilage degeneration. And to eventually tie that into joint replacement, it's probably within reason, it's better for the patients to be out and active for their long-term health and will deal with a slight increase in wear overall for their joint replacements rather than say, well, sit on your butt, your joint won't wear out, but you may end up with heart disease afterwards. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And then if you sort of combine that with where we started our conversation around durability of implants, there's a much bigger window for allowing people to do active things without instilling an excessive amount of risk. And Dr. Bell, one thing that you know we deal with a lot is um, people who are obviously hesitant to have a joint replacement, but then maybe receiving a lot of misinformation about potential treatments um, or options that are out there. Um, you know, questionable injections, supplements, diets. Um, how do you counsel patients about those types of treatments that are promoted but may not have evidence to support them? Yeah, I I, I think the way you just stated it is exactly the way to approach it. From where I sit, I don't want to be a curmudgeon. So if somebody comes in, they're all excited about some new idea and they want my opinion, I'm not just going to be dismissive, but I really I want to give them useful and valuable information. And some of what you just mentioned, if, if it's stem cells or other injections, uh, PRP, the, the data is very unclear. Uh, there's, there's that part of it where, and it's something that as, as clinicians, I think we're all trying to understand better. So studying it and, 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 and being involved in maybe uh, testing um, these new approaches uh, in, a, in a controlled clinical trial as a patient, I would, I would encourage that. But the other side of it, the part that, uh, that makes me nervous is where, and nervous may be uh, un, uncomfortable, is the, the idea where, where marketing outstrips the science. And there's some of that going on uh, out there now with some of these uh, regenerative medicine modalities, let's call them in a, in a large 
grouping that uh, they're not covered by insurance. There's not information to support them. Patients are then at the same time being asked to pay large amounts of money to get the treatments. And I've, I've heard stories from patients, I'm sure you have too, where they've gone back two or three times to have these treatments and, you know, with an additional charge each time. So for something that doesn't have an evidence base, I think uh, that's objectionable. That's, that's not appropriate. So I, I try to tell them that, you know, there's all of those scenarios are out there. Some of it is unknown. Some of it is flat out wrong. And uh, some of it may have real potential, but we just haven't figured it out yet. I think one of the things we also see advertised as well, too, kind of on the, on the same length is technology and the use of technology by surgeons saying they have, you know, special machines in the operating room or have, you know, minimally invasive techniques. What kind of technologies do you feel are, are viable in orthopedics and what have you seen that has really changed the way you actually perform your procedure um, over the past five, 10 years? Yeah, well, there are two things that come to mind, Nirav, in that question. Uh, so what have we used that's, that's made a difference in terms of technology? One thing is patient communication platform. We, we have a, a patient communication platform. It's a smartphone-based system that uh, allows patients to ask questions directly of providers. Uh, it directs the, the question to the appropriate provider. It alerts if there's a a question about something that needs immediate attention. And, and that's, and the answers, uh, some of them are prescribed and uh, some of them are uh, directed to, to clinicians who then respond uh, personally. And that's been a real plus. The patients in, in our practice have, have loved that. On the technical side, the, the one uh, technology that I think has made a difference is the digital templating in, in joint replacement. So we now have calibrated x-rays, digital x-rays, and we can use those images with a digital templating system to determine sizes and position of implants. And particularly in hip replacement, that's been quite useful. And it, it may not be that you do exactly what the computer tells you to do, but if you're in the operating room and you're seeing something very different, then it helps you to raise a red flag, reconsider, uh, maybe take an x-ray to check, something like that. So I think that's a, that's a real advantage in terms of technology as well. One other area I would mention that is uh, burgeoning uh, and a topic of conversation is robotics. And how does robotics fit into musculoskeletal? To my thinking, uh, it has a bright future, but right now it's a technology that is looking for an application. And I think you guys will recall that that was also the case with uh, prostate surgery. You know, not long ago, there was a lot of emphasis on robotic prostatectomy, a lot of controversy on whether it minimized risk, whether, the, uh, whether it provided improvements in outcome. We're having the same conversation in orthopedics, whether it's about uh, doing a partial knee replacement or putting a screw in the spine, uh, all, all these robotically assisted um, steps that we take in surgery. And again, the, the, the data is not clear. I think the potential for a robot to use information and synthesize it to improve 
the execution of surgery is there. So I don't want to be dismissive of it, but I want to be realistic about it. It's not unlike the question you asked me about regenerative medicine therapies. I think there's some real potential there and it will be developed over the coming years. But I'll tell you, we were saying that 10 years ago about robots, same conversation. It's right around the corner. It's going to make a difference. Uh, and there's, there's a lot of expense associated with this technology. So we have to be careful with it. I really think big centers uh, are with, with experts who are interested in the technology should be investigating it and doing it carefully. Um, but I don't think it's something that is every clinic needs to have in the, in the corner ready to go. I'm going to put you on the spot a little bit. Um, since we're in Silicon Valley, we're, we're kind of around a lot of new and innovative ideas. What do you think the next step for tech in healthcare is? Do you think it's wearable sensors, interoperative decision aids, robots that follow us on a daily basis to make sure we're doing our exercises? Yeah, you know, Brian, I, I think it would be impossible to say which of those very useful technologies that you listed is going to be the winner. But here's what I would say to you is that we have not yet benefited by the, call it uh, big data information technology, um, the uh, artificial intelligence, the, the idea of synthesizing information from multiple sources to make decisions at the point of care. I think there's a, there's a huge opportunity there. And that, that would mean um, anything from consensus-based literature to information about the uh, patient's mobility from a sensor to information about their personal habits based on uh, social media, um, the electronic health record, let's not forget that. There's all kinds of things in there and using that information intelligently to improve our recommendations, our decision-making, the patient's understanding of why we're doing or recommending what we're recommending. Uh, I think there's a, there's a huge opportunity out there. This is something that is being used in other fields. Um, medicine is more complex than many things, so it's not surprising that it doesn't just instantly launch, but I think um, you don't have to decide which technology, but you have to figure out how we're going to get that information to the point of care and use it effectively. That's, that's where I see the real difference being made in the shorter term. Um, so maybe transitioning a little bit, but um, obviously, you know, leadership is one of the you know, key parts to your current position. And um, in your career path, how did you decide that you wanted to be a chair of a major orthopedic surgery department? Well, thanks for asking that question. It's, uh, you know, I can recall uh, thinking about career path, um, you know, what, what did I want to do? And being a chair was not explicitly what I was looking for at, at really any stage. It was more about uh, the, the opportunity to be creative, create change, make a difference. So at, at a certain point in my career, I had this idea about um, an orthopedic uh, institute concept, the idea of aggregating providers that are, who are dealing with musculoskeletal health 
orthopedics, you know, rheumatology, neurosurgery, plastics, et cetera, the imaging, anesthesia, and, and providing that care in a, in a convenient, patient-oriented place. And I had, you know, conversations with the institution where I was working about this. There was a lot of uh, interest in it. Um, and it, but it, it didn't move at a, at, at a rapid pace. And then it, and it became uh, a conversation when I was asked to take a look at the job at UCSF. And I said, well, what do you think about this idea? And so going back to your, your question, it's not so much about a, a particular role or title as it is about, or for me, as it was about being in a position where there was opportunity to make change, to push the needle, uh, to work with really talented people like you all and uh, institute some of these uh, very creative ideas about how to deliver care and how to use technology and the things that we're talking about today. That's what I was looking for, the environment where that would be possible. There are really good chair jobs and there are really bad chair jobs. And I would say a really bad chair job is one where you're sitting in a chair and you're not making any decisions. You're just relaying news from the dean to the faculty. Uh, well, uh, volume's down, so, so is your salary. You know, uh, We don't have enough operating rooms for your, your team, so um, please, please let the staff know. You know, God help you if you're in a position like that. You want to be in a position where you can uh, promote good ideas, uh, pursue creative ideas, and make a difference in your field. That's a good job. And I tell you, this it makes me also think of another um, sort of concept about looking for a job or uh, evaluating a job. Um, it, it it's not like there are a zillion great jobs that are just okay here are the great jobs and here are the here are the bad jobs um, it's up to you as a person uh, who is moving along in their career and looking for opportunity to say hey this place um, has what it takes to pursue what I want to pursue uh, and the people are there the motivation is there so this could be a really good job that's sort of the art in it is define is determining based on what pieces are available, who's there, what resources, what motivations, is this a, is this a good job or not? No, nobody's going to come up and say, here's the stack of good jobs and here's a stack of bad jobs. Which one do you want to take a look at? It's up to you to figure it out. You know, all I heard when you said that was that there's OR time available to do more shoulder replacements. So yes, you know, the sports service will take it. Um, okay. You know, <laughs> good. I'm glad we're in agreement on that. Um, so you definitely echo what I think a lot of us think about um, being chair people, that it can be a rather thankless job or one that really wasn't what it used to be or didn't have the same prestige that it used to carry. What's, uh, what's the one thing that you enjoy most about your job, other than obviously me and Narev and Drew? Yeah, apart from the three of you, um, and and thanks for recognizing that being a chair isn't as prestigious as it used to be. That's, that's reassuring. And I think we're, we're on the same, same page. Um, but what do I really enjoy? What I really enjoy is the visioning, the, the idea of um, looking at what are the possibilities and saying, 
uh, how can we do this better and then creating highly effective teams of people who have similar interest in that vision and pursuing it and it's really that that is um that is a lot of fun and uh with with creative people with good ideas you can really do a lot and i i enjoy that aspect of it very much the other part of it that i i really enjoy is uh, watching and helping people develop in their careers encouraging people to say yes to things uh, say no to other things, but helping them along to uh, pursue the things or that that are of great interest to them. That's that's one of the one of the roles of being a chair that is uh, also quite uh, rewarding. Along those lines, what what traits do you see in, in medical students or residents over the years that that will you know, that basically predict that they may be a leader or or will lead them to kind of achieve highly in their in their field? Yeah, there. I guess there are a lot of of traits of of leaders. You think about parsing through what's what's most important. I think it boils down to a passion for what you've chosen to do, that you're doing it for the right reasons. You really believe uh, that you can make a difference, that it's important, and you're able to persuade others that that your point of view has merit that yes in fact what you're describing is important and i agree with you and uh but it, that that requires having a passion for what you do and if you if you have that then you can't help but being a leader because people know uh when you're when you're passionate and you're pursuing something for the right reasons. That's that's evident, and that's obvious, and it's much more powerful than any other the superficial reasons why people might uh, pursue a career that are more along the lines of self-interest. So, and you know, we can talk about all the tools of leadership. Those things you can learn in a book. I think those are there are a lot of tools in leadership, communication, dealing with hard conversations, negotiation, etc. But if you, if, I think if you really are going to be an effective leader, you have to be passionate about what you're doing. And that's, that's effective. And that, I think, really helps propel an organization. And, you know, we know that leadership is a skill like any other, something that you have to practice and um, put time in to develop. And what have you found to be the most effective ways to like, purposefully develop that type of skill? Well, as I said, some of the some of the skills are are learned, um, and that's those those are the things that I mentioned. I guess thinking about your question, um, what I like to do is understand people who have been successful. So it's not uncommon for me to read biographies, or if I'm reading the paper, I will. Um, read it with an eye towards um all right what how did that story come about and and you know who was driving it and and how did they accomplish that so understanding and there's understanding people and uh, how they how they accomplished the amazing things that they accomplished and there's so many 
recipes and formula formulas for success and leadership and uh, they're, they're very different and each of us is sort of an amalgamation of all those leaders that we're exposed to and what I've tried to do is expose myself to more uh, leadership understanding uh, the leaders in the world today from all sorts of disciplines what I mean I've just recently read uh, um, Keith Richards autobiography okay and uh, he, so that's probably not the leader you were thinking of, but um, in terms of focus on his uh, chosen career and uh, you know how that got him to sort of a, a creative uh, level that few others have achieved, the idea that uh, when a concert starts, it's sort of like an airplane taking off is how he feels. Now there may be other things driving how he feels, but that's it. It, it, it talks about the passion, the motivation, and that's that's one person, but there's a lot to be learned uh, if, you, if you really evaluate and understand people, uh, particularly highly successful people, and, and I think that can impact your own success. Well, Dr. Vale, that was great. Um, for Nirav, he can look up who Keith Richards is a little bit later. I'm not <laughs> sure he's actually old enough for that. Um, but obviously, we all, we all clearly look up to you and your leadership that you provide at UCSF, and we greatly appreciate the time that you took on a holiday to uh, spend an extra 30 minutes with us. Well, thanks. Thanks for doing this, guys, and I look, I look forward to hearing how it comes out. Thank you for listening to the University of California, San Francisco Sports Medicine Podcast featuring Dr. Nero Bundia, Dr. Brian Feely, and Dr. Drew Lansdowne. We look forward to hearing your feedback and hope you look forward to our next episode. Thank you.